0: Hello
1: and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Gillery. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. After taking power in 1917, the Bolshevik party was quickly confronted with ruling over a vast territory comprising of a myriad of peoples and lifestyles. Nomadic peoples of the Central Asian steppe were one such group that failed to neatly fit into Marxist theory or within the Bolsheviks' goal to build socialism. So what was the interaction between the Soviet state and nomadic peoples in Kazakhstan in the 1920s? How did the Bolshevik Party square its anti-colonial spirit with its imperial impulse, nationalism, and communism in its effort to transform the lives of steppe peoples? I turn to Alun Thomas for some answers. Alun Thomas is a lecturer in modern European history at Staffordshire University, where he specializes in the modern history of Russia and Central Asia and the post colonial nature of early Soviet governance in non Russian regions of the USSR. He's the author of Nomads and Soviet Rule Central Asia from Lenin to Stalin, published by I.B. Taras. Here's Alun Thomas. So, you have you have a new book, your first book, uh, Nomads in Soviet Rule, Central Asia Under Lenin and Stalin. And this looks at the fate of uh, Kazakh nomads primarily, but also Kyrgyz, nomads in the region uh, in the first decade of Soviet rule. And I thought we'd start out by just having you paint a picture of the context for your study and uh, and the region, the nomadic peoples, and the Soviet system at the beginning of your story.
2: Yeah, the the Central Asian region um, is really struggling by the end of the Civil War. Obviously, there's been a process of uh, imperial annexation and colonization under the Tsar prior to the Russian Revolution. But that colonial process has affected some parts of Central Asia for longer than it has other parts. So the annexation of the northern Kazakh steppe began way back in the early 18th century, whereas there are some parts of what becomes known as Russian Turkestan in the south that have only become part of the Russian Empire perhaps two decades prior to the collapse of Tsarist authority. But very definitely um, the uh, life and experiences of nomads has been affected by that process. There's been a really uh, concerted colonisation, first by Cossacks often, and then by Russian peasants of nomadic land in what is now Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. Um that has normally centered on the best migratory or pasturage land of the nomads themselves. So Russian peasants will show up and establish farmsteads and then be protected by the Russian state once they've arrived. And their arrival has been sponsored, supervised to some extent, especially after the creation of the resettlement administration in the late 19th century. And that's an organization which really becomes hated in Central Asia and becomes a kind of a figure of hate for the Communist Party after the revolution takes place. And then you also have this, this period of um, pretty profound periods of violence beginning in um, 1916 with the uprising there. There's been some really good scholarship recently on um, the nature of that uprising. But essentially, um, after the Tsar tries to conscript his Muslim citizens for um, participation in World War I, um, there's a, a mass uprising in an ethnic conflict between uh, Central Asians, including nomads, and the Russian population. So that damages the economy. Then, of course, you have the Revolution and Civil War, which has a pretty deleterious effect on nomads as well. There's an awful lot of violence between the rights and reds in the area. And the confiscation of livestock is a constant threat by both sides. So come 1920, 1921, um, you have an economy that's so destabilised that there are isolated um, uh, episodes of famine, especially in northern Kazakhstan, and widespread shortage as well the nomads themselves um, when we say nomads we're talking about a a large population with a a large diverse set of practices and it's important to remember that as well as nomads migrating in the 1920s especially in the early years you also have a a broader Russian imperial population that's in flux there's a lot of displaced peoples and communities as a result of the civil war so um, I tend to Focus on the fact that we're talking here about habitual migration rather than what's perceived to be temporary migration, which is um, imposed upon ordinarily sedentary communities because of violence and uh, fleeing famine and shortage and that kind of thing. Um, And some nomads are migrating almost all year round. Some are moving from uh, between one of four seasonal pastures um, and then some are migrating only twice a year between summer and winter pastures. So some are more accurately described as transhumant. But again, it's this it's this principle of kind of um, innate or habitual migration that I think is important in defining them and their mobility and their the problems that they're going to cause for the the communist party and the state. Are are the nomads?
1: Are they herding livestock? And, and what kind of livestock and, and how much, how, you know, what was their, mi- how big is their migration pattern?
2: Right, so uh, again, some nomads um, really migrate over a huge swathes of land, especially in the, the, the center of the Kazakh steppe. Whereas for some nomads, um, especially in Kyrgyzstan, their migration is more between low and high land um, from the foothills to the mountain tops of the Tian Shan mountain range. And they're they're migrating with ideally large flocks of sheep or um, large herds of cattle, camels sometimes as well, and of course horses for themselves. Um, But a lot of them are migrating with very small herds indeed, uh, as a result of all the violence that I've mentioned. Um, The final thing to say about the nomads themselves, I think, is that their, um, their identity and their status within their own communities is very heavily connected to genealogy and lineage so um, many of the nomads uh, in question um, are able to talk at length about their family tree and their family background and being able to cite ancestor upon ancestor upon ancestor is, is the, the primary way in which status is afforded to some nomads and not others um, you mentioned the the, the Soviet state um, It's certainly a a kind of patchwork affair in Central Asia in the early 1920s. I mean, this is obviously true across the former Russian Empire, right? The the 1920s is at least partially about state building everywhere. Um, But in Central Asia, uh, there's very limited knowledge and understanding of the region amongst European Bolsheviks back in Moscow. And um, there's a large number of figures who make their way into Communist Party branches at the local level, who have no grounding in Marxism or communism. A lot of them are coming from nationalist groups or um, religious reformers, modernisers of various kinds. And they become part of the Communist Party uh, because they're literate and politically conversant, uh, but they're going to be purged in the late 1920s or the mid-1930s. While they're there, though, in the early 1920s, I think they make a really significant contribution to the kind of early structures, and they're the foundational structures, obviously, of the state as it becomes. Um, I think it's worth mentioning that it's not my thought, I've uh, taken it from someone else. uh, So the NEP is often presented as a a, a, a hiatus before a much more concerted transformation takes place under the first five-year plan. And that perhaps doesn't fit as a model for Central Asia, um, where the NEP period is also really profoundly transformational right from the beginning
1: this is something i think you know all of your chapters uh in the book allude to is different kind of aspects of that trans trying to transform uh nomad life culminating in their final um, making them sedentary um now in in dealing with said the periphery of the either the russian empire and particularly the, the soviet uh, system um there is a, a and and you address this in in your introduction there is an, an ongoing scholarly debate about uh the nature of the soviet union as an empire and and the question of can we you know how much can we understand the soviet union as imperialists compared to say european imperial powers like uh you know england and france um so should we view the soviet system as imperialist and and if so what type of imperialism how should we understand that imperialism
2: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think this whole issue arises from my attempt in the book to kind of summarise all the processes and events and to bring them together and perhaps put them in a kind of world historical context. And I think when I was looking at the material, there was no denying that there are clearly imperial processes that are not just overseen by the communist party um, or witnessed but actually expedited and supervised and facilitated by the communist party with increasing enthusiasm especially by the end of the decade perhaps after a, a, a brief period of respite immediately after the civil war and i think that those processes are certainly redolent of things that were taking place in the russian empire and in other imperial or european empires elsewhere and Probably have their origins in the pre 1917 period and just continued through again after the Bolsheviks take power. Um, so but I'm not trying to deny their presence. And these are things like the colonization of land, the increasing um, withdrawal of migratory routes and, my, and, and pasturage from nomads themselves, and, and the, the gift of those lands back to uh, Russian farmers in the end. And also the kind of vaunting. Of a European uh, lifestyle or a a European way of life in contrast to perhaps a more Asiatic more backward lifestyle as it's perceived by the Communist Party right Um, and those to me feel like Imperial processes but without wanting to enter into a sort of semantic debate particularly about whether the Soviet Union can be called an Empire um, I felt that that Imperial narrative only it was, um, it was a necessary part of the story, but perhaps it wasn't sufficient. And really, looking closely at all the different material I had, I felt that actually the 1920s is more uh, usefully characterised, less as an imperial moment, in fact, rather than a, as a post-colonial period. Obviously, the Tsar's authority has collapsed and has been withdrawn. So in a, in a kind of literal sense, that's true. Um, but also, uh, if you look at the way in which kind of Um, elites in post-colonial states, nationalist modernisers, for want of a better phrase, their relationship with indigenous practices is often deeply antagonistic. And the narrative emerges that, why was our national group subjugated by an imperial power? Part of the reason is that we are backward, underdeveloped, and we have these, these vices, these national problems, and one of those often is nomadism. And so nomadism becomes um, part of the reason why nationalities have been held back and why it, and that's why nomadism has to be confronted. So by rationalising, by um, seeking to develop land and pursue economic efficiency and pull a region out of its kind of post-colonial stupor, nomadism suffers uh, often as a result of that. It's pretty corrosive for nomadic practice. So it, it looks to be more like a period... Uh, after an imperial um, era when a new elite take charge and are seeking to modernize and seeking to bring their national population their citizens and re into the uh, the structures of the state and have them become participatory citizens um, but the nomadism is not protected as a national characteristic but is, is in the end um, um, targeted partly for that reason so uh, to me post-colonialism is uh, Was the best point of comparison I could find for for what happens under the NEP. Is that also
1: because the indigenous elites have a, you know, a a role to play in this modernization effort? I mean, I know this also from, say, Adrian Edgar's book on, um, on Turkestan, and the creation of the Turkmen nation and in the fact that you have here you have you know indigenous elites intellectuals and others who are playing a very vital role in the creation of this national identity and the modernization of this of this autonomous republic is that a similar case in in your
2: story i th- i think so yes you know the i think the the primary um attitude that Bolsheviks way up the chain of command have towards nomadism is indifference or ambivalence. It's the it's local administrators who confront the problem day by day um, and are looking for a solution to that problem as they see it, uh, who end up becoming much more uh, antagonistic towards it. And um, if you, are, having only taken a cursory view really of of some of the alternative elites who might have taken charge in this region in in a kind of hypothetical alternative uh, history. There's no predominant nationalist or um, reform-minded political ideology at work in Central Asia that that celebrates nomadism and wants to protect it and wants to um, uh, give it a free reign and and allow it to revive itself. Sure, the communists are sceptical of nomadism, but, but so are many of the nationalists who declare... Um, temporary republics during the civil war as well. So th- their presence then in the lower echelons of the Communist Party later on is not going to do anything, I don't think, to um, uh, prevent nomadism's decline. In fact, th- they appear to have made it worse.
1: Yeah, that's this. This is one of the, I think, one of the troubles or or one of the difficulties in talking about the Soviet system as imperialist because it doesn't necessarily. F- you know, our point of comparison tends to be from, say, a European imperialist model, you know, England or France. Uh, But here you have, uh, in that Soviet empire, you have a a nationalist thrust uh, to some extent, at least on the cultural level, promoted by by the center, by Moscow, but also taken up by by a local indigenous people. And it's actually interesting that you, the the post-colonial uh, framework or comparison is actually a really interesting one because here I think you you I'm assuming you're drawing Interesting comparisons with efforts say in South Asia or in Africa in dealing with nomadic peoples
2: Yeah, right and um, you know the I, I think the evidence is clear that uh, there, there is a rush to uh, su- Support and develop new nation-states naturally enough and uh, the same language is used, the same conception of a kind of uh, linear model of development becomes predominant in those states as well. For all the talk of national differ- differentiation, right, and uh, support for national difference, um, economic development, and uh, the pursuit of kind of progress with a big P, I think, um Hasn't done nomads favors as you say elsewhere in the world as well. That seems to be my impression How was nomadism perceived
1: before and after the revolution?
2: It's a matter that is I guess both simple and complex. It's simple in the sense that um, I've seen very little evidence that the Communist Party thinks about nomads as a single problem Uh, They don't think about it holistically I think that's for two reasons. I think there's very little institutional empathy in the Communist Party for nomads and the way they are um, living their lives. There are very few nomads who make their way into the the Communist Party um, at an upper level, uh, although more than I expected actually make their way into the lower echelons of the party, the administrative levels, Uh, in any case. The other, I think, primary reason why they don't tend to think about nomad, nomadism as a as a, a single big governing challenge in the way they do about nationality, for example, is because it, it's part of the kind of broader utopian thinking, I guess, of the early Bolsheviks is that nomads are assumed it's assumed they're going to settle very early on uh, in response to the, you know, the fruits of communism that, you um, we will have you know, a worldwide revolution, the immediate attainment of communism, and we'll have nomads settle because it's not said out loud. But the assumption is that a communist life is going to be a sedentary life. It's going to be urban. It's going to be industrial. It's certainly not going to be nomadic. Um, and so there's no reason for the Communist Party to think about nomads as a long term problem if they assume it is only going to exist in the short term. And then all the nomads will settle because economic development will be um, will we'll, we'll persuade them of that, of the, the virtues of a sedentary life. Um, but give, notwithstanding the fact that they, they don't think about nomadism, uh, I don't think it as, as clearly and as ideologically perhaps as they do with other the factors, uh, it remains complex because um, there are patterns and trends in the way that uh, everyday Communist Party officials and others treat and think about nomads. And I think a lot of those are uh, the f- the the product, again, less of ideology and more of just the kind of prejudices that would have been extant amongst officials in the Cyrus empire about backwardness and wretchedness and uh, poverty and the assumption that nomads were simply uh, scratching their life out of the dirt as best they could, that they were keen to settle that they were poorly educated so nomads were um not thought of highly and their economy is also believed to be highly unstable uh, and also subject to external shocks and environmental stimuli so the obvious example is this phenomenon of jut um in the kazakh steppe it's basically a hard frost livestock struggle to penetrate the ice and it, um, get to the fodder below and they starve on uh, mass and that obviously causes tremendous trouble for the the nomads now that's a self fulfilling prophecy because the communist party sees the nomadic economy as unstable and impoverished and that policies which in fact make that situation worse and see it as proof that their diagnosis is correct very often um, there's a more subtle matter i think about whether or not nomads really do want to settle and how that should be facilitated um right at the beginning of the decade there seemed to have been some uh, participants at communist party congresses and functions who've kind of wandered in off the street and say things like the heart and soul of kazakhs is nomadic they are freedom loving people and there's nothing we can do about that they they don't show up next year so they're not invited back but um there there is that kind of early assumption perhaps that nomadism is kind of culturally uh, embedded or, or or more than that um then there's a there, then there's a more sophisticated, more uh, long-standing argument between key figures, people like, like Kali Mendeshev or Ali Bijan Gildin about um, whether nomadism was in fact a rational response to their environment or whether it was um, an outdated practice that could just be swept away and whether or not incentives are the best way to facilitate settlement or whether it will happen naturally. Those are perhaps more concerted conversations, but again they only really take place at the local level, I think.
1: It's interesting, on the one hand, they, the the way you put it is their understanding is that on the one hand, nomadism will just kind of wither away with modernization, right? So the in a way, the problem of the nomad is a general problem of a kind of general backwardness of them as a people, Uh, and once they're brought into the modern age, then they'll eventually, you know, become sedentary. If that's the case, what makes the nomad a problem for the state uh,
2: in their governance of, the, that, of Central Asia? I said, I think, earlier about this difference between transient migration or temporary migration and habitual migration. Uh, it is movement that's the, the kind of primary problem. And it's a problem that crops up across whole uh, a variety of different areas of Communist Party governance. Um, as you say, um, a kind of a sense of backwardness and impoverishment, a lack of development, illiteracy. Those are problems that are kind of generally associated with rural areas, and not just in Central Asia, of course. Uh, the nomads are a problem because they migrate; they don't sit still, and so uh, they cross borders that they shouldn't. Uh, they commit crimes and then disappear and can't be held to account. Uh, they're much harder to tax. They're much harder to count. They're much harder to uh, to reach and to propagandize. They're harder to recruit to the Communist Party. And it's also harder to offer them kind of rudimentary services, things like um, medical help or uh, resources. Um, and then they're also considered to be uh, even more unproductive as, um, kind of, I suppose, e- economic agents than peasants, in the Russia, elsewhere, for example, in European Russia or Siberia. So uh, it's the instability as well and the unpredictability, but principally it's, it's that problem that they they won't sit still, and that means that they are much harder to govern, um, especially for a you know for a, a force like the Communist Party that that's so uh, assertive in in its execution of power, I suppose. It sounds like the, you,
1: there are kind of two prongs to this. One is a, a general problem of modern states, in you know, a, a, across uh, you know, at the, in this period of time, whether it's the United States or elsewhere, and that nomadic peoples present a, as you said, a governance problem or a state, a problem of the modern state, which relies on people not moving as much or not moving as habitually. Um, but then, of course, is the other side of this. And as you said, the, the Communist Party itself has a particular desire to exert a lot of power in disciplining a population and making them either mobilizing them or making them susceptible to, you know, services or propaganda or whatever it may be that it, it, it comes at a, a diff, a higher intensity.
2: Uh, would, would you say that this is the case? So I think so. Yes. As you say, there's a broader uh, agenda of modernisation, and there, there are clearly examples elsewhere in the modern era of nomadic people, whether we think of them as nomadic per se or just highly mobile, tra- you know, transient um, uh, for whatever reason. And indeed, even temporary migration like refugees um, and migrants, they uh, put heavy strain on administrations, especially administrations that are growing in their ambition. And as you said, I don't think you get a more ambitious administration in some ways than the Communist Party. So um, it's a challenge anyway. And then you also have a very ambitious uh, new governing cadre
1: as well. Now, one of the interesting things about in terms of uh, the Bolshevik view of the world is that their um their approach to nomads is driven by various forms of classification whether and 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 this comes through uh in your discussion of the 1926 census in the sense of trying to classify these people say by nationality but also more importantly in in the Bolshevik worldview is by class uh and nomads of course don't fit into the general class categories we associate with the bolsheviks that they would apply to say russia to peasants or to people in cities workers etc so how did they understand nomads in terms of class and and also in terms of nationality uh, the class question
2: i think um bec- could could have become very um complicated in in the end it, it becomes kind of brutally simple I was struck by the fact that you, you kind of don't get a m- more, I guess, economistic distinction between people than whether or not they uh, produce in a in a single location or whether their economic production is contingent on their movement. I mean, it's a very, it, to me, that reads as a kind of an economic distinction between peoples. There is no nomadic class that I've come across in the, the imagination of the communist party. Um, despite the fact that class, uh, multiplies and is applied to all sorts of different characteristics in European Russia, I think, during the same time. Um, and so there's a, there's a more traditional debate, I guess, about whether or not nomadic communities themselves are class stratified. And in the early years, there is a, a greater willingness to listen to party members who are skeptical of this. Who say that um, nomadic communities shouldn't be understood as a kind of three tier class system and that uh, uh, often this is tied in with their underdevelopment. This is something that it can sometimes be difficult to get across is that, you know, it, capitalism creates classes because it's in a sense making progress, I think, in the Communist Party imagination, if that's the right way of putting it. Um, so a lack of capitalism, a lack of progress begets a classless society, that's not necessarily a positive thing. Um, anyway, uh, towards the end of the 20s, the argument is comprehensively won by people who want to present the nomadic community as class-based. And the model that they turn to is won by Boris Vladimirov, which is nomadic feudalism. So again, that implies a, a lack of perhaps capitalist relations right in nomadic regions, but very definitely the existence of a kind of despotic class and then an exploited class the despots are the bai and the manap who are kind of tribal uh, authority figures of various kinds in kazakh and Kyrgyz communities um they tend to be more wealthy and more authoritative and so they are they become uh it, it's crude but it works they be, they become the nomadic version of the kulak um in every meaningful way really and are uh, targeted as a result of that, and, and just as elsewhere, that, uh, kulak or bourgeois identity becomes more and more elastic in, until uh, anybody can be accused of that, really. Um, and the way that they, the, the one of the important additional features of the way that the Bay and, and the Manap operate is that they keep the nomadic population migrating as far as the Communist Party becomes concerned. So, um, uh What happens is, by their telling is that the the richer nomads lend livestock or the use of livestock for resources and dairy products and so on to poorer nomads in exchange, the poorer nomads have to tend to the whole flock, not just the animals that they're responsible for, and so they never get the opportunity in terms of time to to rear their own livestock and become self sufficient and so they become dependent on the buy. And they become dependent on seasonal migration as a way of surviving to 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 follow along with these exploiters. And so this imposition of a class-based understanding of nomadic society comes along with the Communist Party's view that nomads are often are desperate to settle but won't be allowed to because there's this class of people exploiting them. Um, and that, that becomes a, obviously a justification later on for pretty brutal measures so did did they in, in terms of the exploited classes
1: did they ascribe a certain um uh revolutionary agency to them in the sense that if they were you know freed of their exploitation they would just become more sedentary and develop you know in the sense that the same kind of revolutionary agency that they say gave to the batraks for example these and, and these kind of proletarian peasants amongst the peasantry
2: that's a really excellent question, and it's not something I have... It's, it's never occurred to me before that they should have done. Uh, I wonder if that's because uh, they didn't. I mean, very definitely, um, in the documents I looked at on propagandising in what's known as the nomadic old the community, and um, about party recruitment, there is this idea that class... Conflict and the um, the kind of recruitment of the lower classes in the pursuit of this revolutionary ideal that comes across, but not strongly. So I don't think they are really ascribed this revolutionary potential, which, as you say, would totally follow the the ideological logic of the the Communist Party's way of thinking. Uh, uh, whether that speaks to that that broader sense of the nomads being uh, very, um, backward and subservient people, uh, to the point where perhaps they lack even their kind of revolutionary potential within their own communities. I'm not sure, uh, that would make some sense though, I think. Yes. Maybe this
1: is, this is where the, you know, in some ways the another place where the imperial moment comes in the sense they can't, unlike say even the landless peasants that are given some measure of revolutionary agency, they they have the potential to emancipate themselves. But nomads, because they are so backward, because they're not sedentary, um, that they they need an outside force to emancipate them to to a certain extent.
2: Yeah, I I think I think that that almost certainly does that kind of um, slightly more patronizing view of non Europeans and nomads, I think plays in definitely. So and what about nationality then? Uh, Right, so um, nationality has a different relationship to nomadism, um, but remains important, especially in the early years. So, um, of course, in the mid-1920s, Central Asia is delimited into these national republics that became the independent republics that we know today. And um, that decision... has administrative and also kind of ideological implications for the way that administrators think and act, which uh, is pretty damaging to nomadic life. Uh, And part of the reason for that is that nomadism is never written into the national identity, uh, as the Soviets see it, of any of the, the, the five kind of principal nationalities that emerge out of that process. So the the Kazakhs and Kyrgyz, as I've said, aren't considered to be innately nomadic. That's not a feature of their identity. It can be used uh, as a point of contrast. So, if Kazakhs and Russians are nearby each other, and one group is nomadic, it makes it much easier for the administrators to to delimit one nation from the other. Um, but, principle, I, I guess, uh, uh, exactly because nomadism is not considered a, a, a positive lifestyle or practice, it's not. Um, desirable to suggest that any one national national group is innately nomadic or that it, that's a feature of their culture. So uh, nationalism kind of flies above nomadism and doesn't interact with it um, at the level of uh, kind of intellectual engagement. They don't think about it in those terms, um, uh, which has huge implications later on. And and the other, the other interesting thing that
1: you note, um and and the fact that you have these nomads that are moving it's not like they're respecting national borders right you have some nomads that are migrating into across the border into china uh and of course across various w- would be central asian republics uh and, and and in fact you write that um the soviet drawing of borders in central asia which was fairly new in the 1920s um suited the region's nomadic areas like an ill-fitting garment. Um, how did the drawing of borders impact these nomadic peoples to make it so ill-fitting?
2: I think it's important to recognize that uh, the nomads in question had a, a sophisticated, deep-seated familiarity with their landscape and understanding of their landscape. So there's a, a, perhaps a popular perception that nomads float freely in a highly mobile I can go wherever they choose whereas in fact their migratory routes are you know are very important and um, that means that they're, they're familiar with the con- you know the concept of borders and limitation and kind of spatial delimitation very definitely and it, that, that, that's true between their own communities uh, as well as it was under the Tsar when there were a different kind of administrative border um, that they had to accommodate to as well. And of course, as you mentioned the border with China, which is long-standing, but nomads have traditionally uh, Travelled into the western region the Xinjiang region of China um, and then back into the Russian Empire as well. So that border crossing is um, uh, Only kind of semi semi policed uh, in the, the imperial period So nomads are familiar with borders and, and limitation, but um once the national delimitation begins, and really prior to that point, because there's, a, there's a, an, an early, more inchoate attempt to divide up nation national groups before that point as well. Um, the, the Communist Party has real trouble um, drawing borders that reflect nomadic practice, obviously, because the lack of knowledge and understanding of their behavior is very limited. And also there's a, a broader disinterest as well and then of course has real trouble policing those borders after the, they've been made um, and nomads um, will often cross borders without knowing it and get themselves in trouble for that reason uh, they can in the early years however use the uh, borders to their own advantage to some extent so where there's a dispute over the use of land and Russian farmers and nomadic uh central asians are both seeking to use the same land then the 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 national identity of the nomads might be mo- mobilized or used as a, a way to justify drawing a a, dist- a line between their different plots of land in a way that favors the nomads especially within their own titular republic but it's always done on the basis of the fact they're kazakhs or kogiz not on the basis of that are nomads um and that's indicative of what happens later on because um, as border making um, Loses its kind of heavy emphasis on national difference and becomes more about efficiency and uh, econo- economy and it properly exploiting the land then um, It becomes harder to say that Ownership of land should be uh, given to nomads because they're Kazakhs and also of course nomadic practice itself is considered to be unproductive so the borders aren't drawn for their uh, benefit either and um, so um, it, there, there is some limited use in this national delimitation for nomads, but it, it's only partial, and it's, it, it's unlikely to last. Given, given all the
1: things you're saying, I mean, <laughs> from the perspective of the state, it's, it's a mess <laughs> um, to govern over this region. So, so how did the Soviet state govern over these nomadic regions in, in the mid to, to late 1920s?
2: I mean, with a lot of difficulty, um, and in a way that I think is not uh, kind of consistent across the decade. I think you see administrators making decisions, acting on principles, changing their mind uh, one day to the next, um, muddling along with a, a, a set of kind of basic agendas in place. But I think the the the, the clearest insight into the way that nomadism as is a, a problem for governance. The best case study be is is taxation, where um, in the earlier part of the decade there is this early rudimentary attempt to recognise nomads as their own economic um, category and to tax them more leniently because they are struggling more often than their sedentary counterparts. And um, again, this is done very early on because they're nomads rather than because they're Kazakhs or Kyrgyz. So the national question is is pushed out of that particular discussion, but it doesn't last long. And there's a real confrontation that takes place between agricultural organs who are perhaps more sensitive to um, the the life and the status of nomads versus financial um, organisations that are obviously focused on the bottom line and uh, extracting resources from the population for the state's use. so the compromise that's reached midway through the decade is that nomads should be afforded some kind of uh, tax exemption if they pledge to settle or in the process of settling to make that transition easier because in the long term they're going to be more productive and y- yield more for the state anyway. Whereas nomads who refuse to settle are going to be taxed at the, the same rate as everyone else. But you immediately get into practical concerns. if. As a nomad, you are approached by a tax collector and told, if you're settled for good in this particular campsite, then you will pay less tax. You are naturally going to tell that person that you've settled for good. And when when they return the next day to take the tax and they find you've gone, again, there's very little way in which the state, because it's patchwork and because it's still in the process of being built up, it's hard to pursue those nomads into the step and tax them as, as as is seen fit so financial organs find this solution less of a solution really and, and more of a, a new set of problems um, and so the the end result is uh, as we've said in the end tax policy is imposed on a class basis onto nomads as it much as it is onto everyone else in the former russian empire and, and the impact is is very negative but I, I think it's important to emphasize that the Communist Party does make an effort to um, find a tax policy that kind of works for nomads in the long term and recognizes their behavior. It's just very, very hard to implement. And there are other priorities at work, right, that that, um, that, that force their hand in the end. Um, but the effort is made. And that, that's significant, I think, because sometimes it's... Um, the implication is made perhaps that they're on a kind of inevitable trajectory towards confrontation, these two forces. That's uh, close to true, but I think it uh, lacks nuance. What was the Red Caravan? The Red Caravan is a a very interesting little um, exploratory force that sets off um, from the, the capital of the Kazakh Republic right at the beginning of the decade and does a little tour of the steppe And it's composed of a whole host of different people. Some of them end up very senior in the Communist Party uh, and not all purged at the end of the 1930s. Jen Gilden, I think, even outlived Stalin. Um, But they they really dominate Kazakh politics for some time after this this jaunt that they go on. So the Red Caravan is made up of anthropologists, ethnologists, um, uh, photographers, but also medical experts, veterinary experts, a member of the Red Army, various Communist Party members. And it's intended to do two things simultaneously. And anybody who knows um, much about Soviet history will know that the Communist Party didn't necessarily see these things as distinct from one another. They propagandized, but they also extracted information, but they also offered services. So um, they were intended to kind of reach the nomadic population, find out more about them give them the good news about the revolution and also offer advice um, about political organisation but also about very basic everyday things. And it's a the Red Caravan is a, a prelude to um, a much more um, extensive policy um, described as the Red Yurts, which are um, similar in many ways. And um, Paula A. Michaels has written about the Red Yurts more extensively than I have. They are um, mini kind of um, uh, cells of the Soviet state. They offer uh, midwifery advice to women. They uh, offer literacy classes, um, classes again on Marxism and political organisation. Uh, they offer medical services and veterinary services, and they also propagandise amongst nomads on the Kazakh steppe and in Kyrgyzstan as well. Um, in the 1920s and they I, I think make a comeback again as well uh, much later on in the 20th century under the, the Soviet state too I mean they're fascinating in their own right and they produce a lot of really interesting archival documentation for us to look at uh, and they produce you know cultural uh, kind of uh, problems and misunderstandings as well as achievements the reason I think they're interesting um, well, one of the many reasons I think they're interesting is that they, again, as I've mentioned with tax policy, I think they exhibit the willingness of the Communist Party to meet the nomads on their own turf and to kind of go mo- mobile and, and 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 migrate alongside nomadic communities. Um, I think I guess I'm trying to emphasise that, although the um, the way the Communist Party thinks about nomadism is pretty unforgiving. Um, uh, and there is this assumption that settlement is imminent. There are these isolated efforts to uh, accommodate nomadism uh, on its own terms, rather than as a prelude to sedentarization or settlement. Um, the Red Yurts exhibit that that principle, and I, th- I think that that connects back to this effort made to bring the nomads into the structures of the state and make them participants. And uh, and, and, and and I think is connected back to that post-colonial moment that I wanted to talk about earlier.
1: And it also sounds like in, in terms of a narrative, you're, you're trying to, well, at least in, in how I'm reading it, your narrative isn't one of a kind of cres- a culminating crescendo to, say, collectivization, but a, a kind of zigzagging on the part of the Communist Party and the state just to figure out what to do with these nomadic peoples.
2: Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. I think it's, it's ad hoc. And uh, it, it's partial, and it's um, it's not thought through, and that means that in some ways they're afforded respite, and that there are these efforts, isolated efforts, um, that that could have um, operated alongside nomadism indefinitely, um, and that collectivisation, when it comes, as you say, is not the the final act in a in a uh, a drama that begun back in 1917, but is in fact um, a, a new event with its own dynamic.
1: Do you have a sense of how nomads, um, what they thought of these, you know, communist party representatives and, you know, doctors and caravans and, and, you know, basically people from the cities coming into around their communities?
2: It's a, it's a great question. Um, I'm limited by uh, uh, language uh, and also by use of sources I work primarily in the state and party archives with Russian language sources uh, but my own inter kind of um, experience of the, the nomadic voice if you like primarily came through the petitions that they would write because they were unhappy often about um, land use or, or uh, but about the red Yurts for example or about taxation uh, some of them very personal documents. What is important to emphasize is that uh, because they were typed out in Russian, there's very definitely at least one, probably two uh, kind of iterations of this document that emerge. They probably emerged out of interviews with Communist Party officials and have been um, treated as you'd expect from from a document with that kind of provenance. Um All the same, yes, you get a sense of um, a, a whole host of very localized disputes um about the practicalities of everyday life um the important the i think uh, there's an ethnic uh, very definitely or cultural kind of component to the way the nomads think they think about themselves as separate from the russians especially and the russians as separate people and very definitely this notion of great power chauvinism and the um uh, imperialism 2.0 that the Russians are are back when they start reimposing their their will on on nomadic pastures and nomadic migratory routes and such like that 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 comes across from the documents but they do learn um perhaps not to speak to the Bolsheviks on on their own terms or in their own language because I I think that's probably a product of the translation but they do learn to it seems pull certain levers or push certain buttons to talk about first of all the fact that this is supposed to be the Kazakh Republic now and Kazakhs are supposed to be looked after. And that uh there are different classes of people, uh, economic classes of people, and some deserve better treatment than others. They they tap into those two agendas and they use them when they talk to the state. Um at least in a kind of um uh in an instinctive way. So um they they pursue their own interests and they 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 do talk to the Communist Party, they don't simply avoid it, they confront it and they they confront it with their problems. To the extent to which they're listening to, it decreases over time. But in the early 1920s, very often uh, you know, European settlers will wake up one morning and find uh, nomadic livestock in their farmland and there'll be an altercation and there'll be violence. Whoever comes off worst will go to the local Communist Party organisation and complain and those decisions... um, are decided in the nomads' favor more often um, uh, than I expected in the early part of the decade. The nomads um, uh, are are seen to be making reparations for the imperial injustices that took place before 1917, and the the Communist Party is making a very conspicuous effort to respect that.
1: And and finally, um, you end your book on the cusp a little bit into collectivization. Um, So what was collectivization like, the experience for nomadic peoples and in Central Asia more generally?
2: There's uh, some really excellent scholarship that's just being published now on this matter. Um, And as you say, my book really only touches on this question uh, because I was interested in uh, challenging that idea that, that as, you, as we've said already, you know, collectivisation is something that comes last in a, in a story that begins with the revolution. Uh, nevertheless, it's such an important part of the story. It absolutely cannot be overlooked. Um, collectivisation doesn't have the same impact everywhere um, in the former Russian Empire. It has much more egregious effects in some places rather than others. And, of course, the best-known example of this is Ukraine. Ukraine. Um, But Kazakhstan especially is hit very hard indeed by collectivisation and and the rest of Central Asia too. And nomadic regions um, are really profoundly destabilised by what happens. Um, I I begin talking about collectivisation in the book by talking first about Philip Goloshokin, who is the first secretary of the Kazakh Communist Party. Um, And he comes to govern the branch in the mid 1920s and he has this conviction that the October Revolution never really properly happened in Kazakhstan That progress hasn't been made since 1917 And so he imposes what he calls his little October in 1926 and really that's a that, That's a, a massive centralization of power in his hands and in the hands of his office um, and it comes with uh, the imposition of a much more strict party orthodoxy, certain people who I've been speaking about before who expressed doubts about whether or not the nomads could be incentivised to settle and whether or not that's desirable. Those kind of people are silenced in the party in that time. And uh, he also very much follows the line from Moscow about collectivisation and begins to experiment with it quite early. So collectivisation is pursued very aggressively in Kazakhstan uh, and it comes to Kyrgyzstan a little bit later. And the population uh, drops enormously as a result of that process. Some have emigrated um, or perhaps changed their nationality, but the the number of Kazakhs picked up in uh, the 1926 census, I think, and then one in the 1930s, uh, the the number drops enormously uh, because there's mass fatalities. And nomads um, who have been struggling economically for a long time anyway uh, also bear the brunt of this uh, policy. The way in which Soviet historiography presents it is that uh, the nomads are um, undergo a process of what's called sedentarization. So it, a much more concerted effort is finally made in the late 1920s by the Communist Party to actually force them to settle. But really, what we're talking about, I think, is um, a, a post hoc decision. To deal with the, the casualties and the refugees of uh, collectivisation by establishing new collective farms and forcing them to, to live on them. Um, so the population is settled uh, aggressively and violently by the Communist Party militia, um, but it's part of the, um, uh, the, the kind of mopping up process after collectivisation has been imposed very aggressively in that region so so let me wait a second let me
1: understand the process here then so the 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 party goes and and they expropriate you know livestock or you know the 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 buys and as a result of that you know wave of violence and destruction through the expropriation process the settlement part se- making them sedentary into collective farms is the is the attempted solution to contain that uh disruption caused by the initial expropriation
2: i i think that's right yes i think that's right um the way i've had it described is that um the party primarily settled livestock first so they would um uh force nomadic herds into kind of prefabricated pens and tell people that if they would to remove that livestock, then that would be considered stealing from the state and they would be executed on site. And so uh, nomads who cannot go anywhere without their livestock at this time are forced to settle around these prefabricated pens. Um, And that's part of the process of collectivization. It's done to communities whose migration has kind of lost its logic because they're really just trying to survive and fleeing uh, violence at this time. Um, The uh, important thing to add is that much of the uh, Kazakh steppe, especially is completely unsuitable for sedentary agriculture, which is why the population is nomadic, partly at least. And so um, these new collective farms with livestock on them quickly lose their livestock, which starve to death, and that absolutely exacerbates the famine. That was Alun Thomas a
1: lecturer in modern European history at Staffordshire University, where he specializes in the modern history of Russia and Central Asia and the post-colonial nature of early Soviet governance in non-Russian regions of the USSR. He's the author of Nomads and Soviet Rule, Central Asia from Lenin to Stalin, published by I.B. Taras. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussia.blog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblestnesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from Sean'sRussiaBlog.org as well. Until next time, bye! Look!
0: Down there! Yo 7L, yo S, man, y'all niggas ready? Teaming up with... The... I'm back at it, man. The... One and the only Mad Scientist flow. In the laboratory on some Franken Rhyme shit. <laughs> Bring shit to life on them. Call me your worst nightmare. Watch the birds take flight, take light. Every verse I air. Guaranteed I deliver it hot. Like what? Dominoes feet up, chillin' in your spot. Romano's meaningly beat it, you can see that he's heated s feel the same, that's why we remain seated yeah. Keep the lab dusty like the day after D-Day Spiders die of old age here and we stay Raw like Columbia, white. Right? Stay buzzing, hey cousin Ain't nothing all my numbers is right Red dragon from the dungeon of rap, dark flame Set free, truthfully, these MCs are lame And they should be illegal, like that Adam on Eagle I got the ego of evil Knievel, you weak and feeble I'm P.D. Siegel, if he was one of the Beatles I'm the DNA Magneto, so fuck, fuck your people. <laughs> you know what? Uh, we need to rein in the czars. In fact, how do you negotiate with those guys in good faith? How do you have a dialogue with, them, with those guys? How do you reach out to them? yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey, it's Eddie Brock and Peter Parker And we go rock black till they make something darker And we back to building inside the Baxter building Private location, thight, 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 no hibernation, th- no, th- hibernation th- no Michael Myers adjacent. Jason Your Highness the Great One took the hat off the as the brave ones Lord of the underground, dumb in the mouth With the crowd of a hundred thou, bow to the sound The Archangels sing, the car's name will ring Frontliners, the pawn is what made him king I